If you would, turn in your Bible to John chapter 3. John chapter 3 again this morning. Man, that that was fantastic, y'all. That was great. Love being with you all on Sunday morning and hearing your voices and being encouraged in that way. And what a delight that God is the one who orchestrates that reality. Men devise plans by which we come in to be entertained by the music that comes from a platform or a stage, but God encourages His people to sing one another the encouragement that they need. Isn't that fantastic? Yes. All right, John chapter 3. We've been here for some time, and I make no promises as to when I'm going to let you out. But we've been talking about the, the new birth. Uh, which is a fairly significant topic and one that is debated broadly um, throughout the centuries in the church among faithful Christians. And here the plain meaning of the text is clear that we must be born from above, that we must be born a second time, that this is a mystery ultimately of God. And we talked about last week the reality that uh, the great promises. Uh, the, this is a great promise throughout the New Testament, and there are different uh, words that are used uh, to point to this reality of needing new birth. Uh, that we are born again. That there is the the word generation or new creation. That God gives us a new heart. That He cleanses our heart. Um, that we, in fact, are raised with Him is an illusion or illustration. Uh, pointing to the new birth. These, these terms are really uh, magnifying terms to the reality of the doctrine of the new birth. And, and friends, just some of you are, are not with us on Wednesday nights, and, and I don't begrudge that, but uh, we, we, I think we were served well this last week, week um, in our discussion. And, and I don't think that we should, we should um, gloss over the reality of the position that we have in uh, the economy of God's providence, no pun intended, um, and that reality that, that we live at a time where we hear the word uh, or the phrase being born again a lot. That is an evangelical uh, buzzword for sure, that we need new birth, uh, and we should rejoice in that. Now there's certainly in our day and age some, I think, misunderstanding of what the new birth is, uh, but there have been times throughout church history, and we have churches in this town, even at this moment, that, that, that make uh, as a requisite for being a member of a church and ultimately being uh, encouraged that one is a Christian, they, they, they point to something other than uh, being born again. And though I don't agree with the Puritans on a great number of things, I do agree with them on this that they moved all of the extraneous religious things out of the way and pointed to the new birth again as the means by which God builds His church. It is God who is doing it, not men. And so these terms that the Bible uses are really important terms for us to have in our mind. And, and, and they're not to just be synonymous with, well, I went to church one time. Now, now, all of us have a subjective experience in our conversion. I'm not taking that away from you. I don't want you to hear me saying that. But I'm afraid that what we have done is we have in the place of actual uh, regeneration, being born again, we have placed in that holy spot the idea that we are regenerated by something that we do. And you can fill in the blank wherever your background is, what that thing is that you have to do. But that's not what Jesus says here. That's not the import and the emphasis of the text. And you're going to hear me belabor what I think is true of this text because it's so important to understand what Jesus is saying here if we're going to understand the rest of what John has to say in his Gospel. Regeneration is foundational to our understanding and the way that we do ministry. Uh, the, the reality that God gen- regenerates hearts takes... You know, one of the things that I find, in, and ministers have different bents and different personalities, and that's okay, uh, but one of the things I find in, in a lot of, uh, of American Christianity today is that ministers are forced into this corner where, where they're encouraged to build their entire uh, the, their ministry out of just frenetic energy. 
That, that we just have to excite people into the gospel. We have to smile all the time. We have to, we have to be you know, the, the, the person stirring people in that direction. Now, I think that we are used as means. But ultimately, understanding that God is the one who regenerates the church and He is the one building the church frees us uh, at some level from a misunderstanding of what it is to have urgency with the gospel. They must have urgency with the gospel, taking the gospel forward. But that urgency is to be obedient to God, not just to have frenetic energy. Uh, and such an important reality, again, all throughout uh, the rest of our understanding. It, it, it helps us to understand that the profundity here is that the Christian life is not one of merely adding things to our lives. It's not one of, hey, you need to, Brian, you need to try harder. Be a better Christian. I mean, Libby's been telling Brian that for years. And I don't know that the sanctifying effect is, uh, is all that we would want it to be, brother. There's something more glorious that should stir the church to her calling in Christ this morning than do more, try harder, be better, those kind of anecdotal things. No, no, no. the Christian life is one that is lived on a foundation that God has divinely, miraculously, supernaturally, lovingly, and kindly birthed us anew into the likeness of Christ. So with that in mind, if you would stand to do honor to the reading of God's Word as we read again uh, verses 1-15. through John here under the inspiration of the Spirit of Almighty God. These are God's words. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to Him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter the second time into his mother's womb? It's interesting how lost poor Nicodemus is in this conversation. Uh, entrance into heaven, into the, earth, in, into the heavenly kingdom, into the body of Christ is what Jesus is pointing to here. And Nicodemus takes us into a really odd preoccupation in an earthly sense in verse 4. But Jesus answers, responds to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the Spirit is is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. And Nicodemus said to him, how can these things be? And Jesus answered, are you the teacher of Israel? And yet you do not understand these things. Beloved, this is the word of the Lord to you and I today. Would you pray with me? Father, we come into your presence today so grateful uh, for this day, so thankful for this gathering, so thankful that you have revealed yourself through your creation and through your word. And we are so thankful that you have enlivened our hearts, that you have regenerated us who are here today, uh, who have turned in repentance and faith and have called upon Your name. You have made us alive to those ends. That You would be glorified. That we would know You. That we would commune with You. And so, Father, we praise You for that reality. We ask that You would inscribe the truth that You have spoken here on all of our hearts. Give me the words to speak. Not one word more. Not one word less. And Father, I pray that You would be glorified in what we do here today. In Christ's name, Amen. You may be seated. Unless one is born again, that is the import here. And that should lay at the heart of all of us this question, am I born again? This is not a passage that we are to gloss over every time that we come to it. This is a passage that should burn with fire. It should cause us to pause and to consider our own calling. Have we been born again? And that's the idea that we continue to wrestle with today. What Jesus has done here in the life of Nicodemus, again, if you look back at chapter 2 at the very end, uh, there is two parts there. Man on their part, entrusting themselves to Jesus. 
And then Jesus on His part, knowing what is in man, not entrusting Himself to them, not fully committing Himself uh, in, in, in revealing Himself uh, in, in, in a particular way. And so, here we come and Nicodemus is, is seeing the signs. Again, this is the import of, of John's Gospel is, 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 is an overview of the many signs that uh, Jesus did. And those signs have a very proximate, clear uh, purpose. And that is that we would believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ. That we would acknowledge the reality that we would, in repentance and faith, uh, believe that He is the Son of, Co- of God and that we would worship Him in spirit and in truth. The, the, the reason that John points to all of these signs is, is clear. But the religious leader here, our friend Nicodemus, was not clear on who Jesus was. And so he comes to investigate. He comes to question Jesus, to put Christ under the microscope. And in the middle of that interaction, Jesus, knowing what is in Nicodemus' heart, just cuts to the chase. You're concerned, all of the religious leaders are concerned with, with your entrance into the kingdom. And you can't even see that kingdom, Nicodemus, unless you are born again. Jesus emphatically lays here in front of this moral, righteous man, this teacher, this ethnic Jew, the reality that there is nothing intrinsic in Nicodemus that will guarantee his entrance into the kingdom of God. It is only by the new birth that we are given that assurance. It is only by the work of God that we are born again and that we are guaranteed heaven and so so Nicodemus comes and you, you have to imagine look we've heard this story now for weeks on end and a lot before then right uh, but Nicodemus is is here for the first time and so he comes before Jesus and Jesus tells him that he must be born again and this is a startling arresting reality for Nicodemus. And so he asks the question in, in verse 4, how can a man be born when he is old? How can a man be born again? Can he enter into his mother's womb? And again, th- this shows us that Nicodemus isn't even in the ballpark. This isn't about entering a physical realm, but a spiritual kingdom. What is being asked here is being asked by a religious man, a moral man, a scholar, and he wants to know, how do I know that I have eternal life, that I have an entrance into the kingdom of God, into eternal life? Friends, this is the type of question that exposes the reality of our depraved hearts, and it exposes the reality of Nicodemus's heart. How can we have eternal life. What must I do in some sense? We find all throughout the Gospels. What must I do to prepare myself for salvation? What moral thing must I do? What must I know for the Gnostics? And and listen, let's not forget as we work through John's Gospel that there are proto-Gnostics in the background of John's writing here. That there are those who would contend in the early church that the way to salvation is through a certain higher knowledge. And friends, I'm afraid that there are times that I find friends even inside the church that seem to have that kind of attitude. Their their confidence, their assurance is rooted in some knowledge that they have. But friends, I would encourage you that this passage pushes us away from that reality. Now we know that our beloved John is a man who loves the word no because he's pushing back at the Gnostics. There is a type of knowledge that does give us assurance, but it's not a mere intellectual knowledge. It is a knowledge of the heart. It's a knowledge of what God has done. It's a knowledge that points us back to the new birth that we have only by the power of Almighty God. And it's a fantastic knowledge. It's not a Gnostic knowledge. But he goes on, you know, what... Nicodemus here may have asked, what what religious thing must I do? You see, friends, we have this problem as humans. We all fall in love with our own religion and our own virtue. Uh, We all have a tendency to slide into a type of thinking that would link salvation to being dependent upon something inside of us. And what Jesus says here 
obliterates that type of thinking. To believe in any way that salvation depends upon us is to misunderstand the teaching of Scripture altogether. And that's what Jesus drives at here. It's a problem that is there in Nicodemus's heart. We've all wrestled with it in some fashion of self-righteousness or pride. And remember, Jesus knows the pride in, in Nicodemus's heart. He knows Nicodemus's self-righteousness. And so he stops Nicodemus in his tracks. And he tells him, you can't even see the kingdom of God without the grace of God. You can't in any way affect your own salvation. It is purely a gift of God. Now we need to see the way that Jesus answers Nicodemus in verse 5. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. This is Christ's second interjection of the reality of, of, of needing the new birth here. But what does this mean? What, a, what, a, what is this water and the Spirit? Now I have, to, I have to be honest with you. I've told a few of my friends throughout this week this is a point of defining what is the water and the Spirit here in this fifth verse. What is Jesus saying? Boy, I have never found a more diverse uh, number of opinions. I mean, even once you get inside of kind of my theological lasso, our, our, where we would consider people to be friends theologically, I, I walked out of my office at one point and just thought to myself, oh my word, my friends are fighting in there. Um, and what, what, one, one of the encouraging things, I, I will say this, immature Christianity believes that we have to agree on every jot and tittle of the Word, right? Uh, and I will be honest with you, as a, as a, as a young man, I, I had a lot of that angst inside of my heart and would get really frustrated and irritated with people and disagreements and, and things like that theologically. And I don't want to undermine the importance of God's Word and that we would uh, come to a right understanding of it. But when we find a passage of Scripture and we find that there are so many erudite theologians, men who love Jesus with their heart, not just the academic type, but, but, but people who academically love Jesus and, and they love His Word and they want to serve His church and yet they have such a disagreement. I think what we can be sure of is that, well, the unity of the faith doesn't depend precisely on our interpretation of these words. Um, now, now, it doesn't make those words unimportant, but it does mean that as we wrestle with these words, we're going to have to be gracious with one another. And I'll tell you this, persecution could not, by God's grace, my prayer is that it wouldn't get me to a point where I would back down from the gospel. But if somebody put, me, put a gun to my head after what I'm going to preach to you this morning, I may have a slightly different opinion here because th this is a hard passage to really wrestle with. The, the, the word, uh, excuse me, the water and, and, and the spirit Oh, what does that mean? Well, again, there's a, there's a lot of different viewpoints. And, and I kind of want to throw some out. Uh, and I'm going to strike them down as we go. And then at the very end, I'll give you the reason why I land where I land. And if we disagree, I want you to know that I know I'm wrong on a great number of things. And I have a wife who tells me that when I need to hear it. So you can join in if you need to. Uh, but I do think that there's a reason why I come to the, the conclusion I do, and it, it, it really aims in a, a gospel-oriented direction, and I hope that you, you find some help in this. So, so, so what does this mean? Well, some have said that the, wa the water and the Spirit, here in verse 5, are speaking of John the Baptist's baptism. And we remember that John the Baptist's baptism is a baptism of repentance. That, that it's, an, it's a signification. We have to remember, John the Baptist was not, he was not, when we hear John the Baptist, don't think modern, uh, big evangelis, uh, evangelical world type Baptist. Because those type, type of Baptist, they'll baptize a goldfish if it'll set still long enough. <laughs> right? 
But the reality is John the Baptist wasn't into that kind of baptism. John the baptism, uh, John the Baptist was insistent that this baptism was an outward sign of a reality that people had come to a point of repentance, an awareness that the King was coming, that He was here in fact already, and there was a repentance working out in their life and He would baptize them. That's why the, 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 um, to a certain extent, uh, and there's many arguments here, um, it's why John the Baptist it didn't get along too well with, with the Pharisees and the religious leaders of the day because what were they lacking? They didn't have a repentant heart. Uh, and so they didn't go uh, forward to John, John's baptism. And so some will point to this is a picture of you need repentance and you need uh, regeneration. So water signifies the repentance uh, the Spirit is that of regeneration. Now this sounds almost right because we do turn in repentance at our conversion. That's a part of what God works out. And, and I'm, in my own life, as we continue to grow in Christ in sanctification, re repentance isn't a once and done thing. It's a continual thing in the life of a Christian. It's the fruit of being born again, right? And so this almost can sound right that we must be born by repentance and the regenerating power of the Spirit. But again, what sounds almost right we need to be careful of because often what is almost right is outright heresy. And I think we would do well. I don't know if any of you ever learned growing up from other people's fights, but I sure did. I grew up in a small town where we settled things in the most redneck ways possible often. And so there were times that I learned not to do certain things by watching somebody else get their rear end kicked, right? I'm not suggesting that's what anyone should do, but it is what it is. And I think one of the things that we're served well by in the church is to look at theological uh, controversies of the past and to learn from them. They may not be our fights. And the particular one that I'm going to talk about this morning is particular to the Presbyterian movement in Scotland. And you may say, well, we're not Presbyterian. You're right. But if we would pay attention to what they had to fight through, we may be served in our own particular denominational heritage. And so the, the, the particular controversy I want to draw your attention to to illustrate the point that I don't think this is right at all is a, a controversy called the Marrow Controversy uh, and the Octorarder Creed. Now, Octorarder is a town in, uh, the, the, uh, in Scotland, and so this is, a, again, a Scottish church controversy. And uh, what, what was going on here is that there was a particular young man named William Craig, and he comes for examination prior to becoming a licensed minister of the gospel. And so good Presbyterians, they grill their subjects before they put, put them in the pulpit, something that, never mind. Um, we, we might do well to do some of that. Um, but uh, uh, there was one question in particular that was asked by the Presbytery of Octorarder and has since become known as the Octorarder Creed. Uh, and ultimately what happened was this young man was asked if he agreed with the statement and then subsequently came back under conscience, retracted his position, and was ultimately removed from having his license. And then that went to the whole, and their whole system. The question was merely this. To put a fine point on it. Do you agree that it is not sound and orthodox to teach that we forsake sin in order to our coming to Christ? Let me, ask, or let me state that again. Do you agree that it is not sound and orthodox to teach that we forsake sin in order to our coming to Christ? And ultimately, boil this down, plain English, what they're asking is must we repent first in order that we might be saved? Now what was happening in the, the, the Scottish church movement, the Presbyterian movement and the church at Scotland at this time was this. The Enlightenment had, had, had become really, it was a budding movement. And so what had happened was the church was being drowned in a moralistic gospel. Now, if you think that's a problem that's only happened in Scotland, then I have, well, I have oceanfront property to sell you down in Arizona. It is not only a problem that has faced the church in Scotland, it's a problem that is perpetual towards the church continually. And so, the gospel was going forward in a moralistic way, and when someone would come and they were in need of salvation, 
often what would happen is the, the, the individual ministers of the church would send the individual person who was struggling outside of Christ to what were called preparatory works for grace. What was being taught was a moralistic type of prepare yourself that you might receive grace. But friends, there's no preparation for grace. The Bible doesn't teach that. The Bible does not teach that look, and we even heard some of this, and I'm not going to argue with it, but listen, I love the Puritans. The Puritans are not the authority over the Scripture. The Scripture is the authority over the Puritans. And the Puritans get things wrong. And sometimes there's even an impulse there of, well, what can I do if God is the one who ultimately does this? Friends, there are things we should do. Pray for our friends that need uh, grace. We should continually encourage lost people to be under the preaching of the Word, to hear uh, the, the proclamation of the Word, because that's the instrumentation. We, above all things, should be the very instruments of taking the Gospel to them. Amen? But we must not leave in the minds of our hearers an idea that, friend, if you want Jesus, you need to do something to get yourself uh, ready so that you are acceptable to receive grace. That undoes the entire narrative of the Gospel. And so the the Octorarder Creed really stands as, I think, a gift to the church. And we want to be on the right side of the Octorarder Creed. Didn't know that before you walked in here this morning, I'm sure. But we do want to be on the right side of that creed because we don't want to add something to the Gospel. Ecclesiastes, Solomon tells us that a little fly will spoil the entire ointment. And my, 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 how many religious people have just dumped little flies in the ointment of the Gospel over the centuries. There is no preparation for grace. And so I, I want to point out to you that if, if, that, if, the, if this one passage, if Jesus is saying here you must repent and then be regenerated, then ultimately we have in some sense undone the gospel and, and people must prepare themselves through the regeneration for new birth. But it's my solid contention with you this morning that the right way to understand the gospel is that we come to Christ. And out of coming to Christ, we, uh, being born again, then we have regenerate hearts. It's only that the, 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 the repentance certainly should be present, but it's the fruit, not the root. It's the outworking of the Gospel. It's not the way that we get to the Gospel. We, we've got to be very careful. And I'll tell you this, studying out this controversy brought your pastor to his knees. Because I have preached the Gospel in such a way at times that it could be misunderstood that that we put repentance as a precondition to the Gospel. The Gospel is the power of God unto salvation and every fruit that needs to flow comes because of its efficacy. Not because we in our human volition and our ability kind of bring ourselves to the point where... And here's the question that has to come. This is not in the notes, y'all. I got worked up studying this. And we're not even to the meat anyway. But, but if, if it's conditioned upon anything in us, and, and repentance, if that's going to be... Because we do see that we must see the fruit of repentance in the life of an individual to believe they've actually been born again. But again, it's fruit. If it's a precondition, then how much repentance must be there prior to God birthing a Christian into the kingdom? Like, what is the level of repentance? I would encourage you that it's repentance as a fruit, not as the root. So... I would reject this view that John's baptism of repentance is being spoken of here. Also, quickly, the natural birth and then regeneration. That you have to have two births. That you have a natural birth, and that is the water here is the picture, without being too grotesque, is the picture of amniotic fluid rupturing and natural birth occurring. And then to be in the kingdom, you've been born physically, then you must also be born spiritually. I I don't think that that is what is being taught here, but that is certainly one view. Some have understood this to refer to baptism and regeneration. They say baptism and regeneration are inseparable. Water speaks of of baptism, uh, regeneration of the work of the Spirit, and and they go hand in hand. This view would would assert that Jesus is teaching Nicodemus 
Ultimately, baptism is necessary for salvation. That, that baptism is a means for regeneration. Uh, what they put in the, words, in the mouth of Jesus is this phrase, except a man be born again by baptism, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Let's just say the thief on the cross trumps this and we can move on, right? This is not, a baptismal regeneration is not found in the biblical record. It's not supported throughout the New Testament. It's not baptism that saves. Some understand a kind of hybrid view that partially this is speaking of baptism, but partially of, of regeneration. And so what these people will say is ultimately we must be born of the Spirit to receive the new birth and normatively that comes through baptism although there are exceptions. They've come a step further. They've they've read through their Bible and realized we can't tie them so closely together that no one can get into heaven without baptism because the biblical record doesn't bear that out. But they're still not very far away because what they're saying is The normative means of regenerating people is through baptism. There are some exceptions. But that doesn't wash with the New Testament either. It's not what the, even this one passage, the full import of what Jesus is driving home is not found to to really emphasize physical water baptism. Others would see, and this is one of my dear friends who I love and and takes this position, and sometimes when you're studying a passage like this and you're getting into the weeds and you feel like you've fallen into a a tunnel, some of your friends go to places where you're like, "Mm, I know why you're standing over there. I, I know why you're taking this position. I just don't know that I agree that that's actually what's being said. I love you, and we can be friends, but we're not going to be in agreement here. And, this is, and, and I, this is one of those almost thou hast persuaded me. Um, because there are imports, I, I think, in, in this direction. Some would see the water being synonymous with the Word and then, all, and then the Spirit being the secondary means of regeneration. So the idea is that there is this kind of... Uh, immediate proximation that the Word goes forward and ultimately then the Spirit uses the Word to engraft and to re- regenerate a human heart. And, and they turn to verses like Ephesians chapter 5, verse 26, that He might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the Word. Or James chapter 1, verse 18, of His own will He brought us forth by the Word that we should be the kind of first fruits of His create- creatures. What, what is pictured here is that the Word is often synonymous with washing throughout the New Testament. And so the, the means by which we are washed is the Word, and then we are regenerated. Uh, there's just a little bit of a problem with that in my mind. Um, it, it, puts a, it, it puts an emphasis slightly that I don't think is helpful. Now, the Word needs to be proclaimed, and we know ultimately that, that we are responsible to carry the Gospel into all the earth, and that that is the means by which people understand the Gospel. And we know that God has promised that His Word would not return void. But I don't know that we, can, we have enough uh, here in the context to point and say for sure that that's what's being taught here, that it is the Word and the Spirit. So we come to a less popular view, but I want to point something out to you. In, in understanding our Bibles correctly, often the view that is unpopular, not always, but often the view that is, is unpopular, that the masses don't buy into, is really the view that is in accordance with all of the Word of God. Um, often texts that are hard to interpret like this uh, will have minority opinions that I tend to find to be true. And so this this opinion is that ultimately the, the words here could be translated in an emphatic sense speaking of the Spirit in two senses making a more emphatic statement. So both are speaking of the Spirit. One is water. The other is not, in the original Greek, is, is pneuma. And so it's breath. 
And, and so there's this emphatic way that you construct the, the right understanding of this text that you must be cleansed. Water having the, 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 the imagery of cleansing us, of making us new, um, and, and that even by the Spirit. So, so the, the, the translation would be something like this. You must be cleansed by water. Yes, even by the Spirit. And I think that, that this, is, this is what is being said here. That the Spirit is the one that unilaterally, immediately, regenerates a fallen human heart. That God Almighty decreed before the foundation of the world to set His love upon some, and Jesus came in the likeness of human flesh, lived a perfect life, and died upon the cross, atoning for the sins of those who would put their hope in Him and turn to Him in faith and repentance. And in moments, the Spirit immediately applies the work that the Father had intended, that the Son accomplished, to the human heart in such a way that the heart is regenerated, made alive, given a spiritual awakening, and then He can respond to the Word. You know, when we talked about the Word being synonymous with the water, uh, that, that particular interpretation, I think, falls apart. So, I've known several people who grew up in Christian context, and they'll say something like this, well, I grew up in a Christian home, but nobody ever said the gospel. I have a friend in particular, I wasn't until I was 18 years old that anybody ever mentioned the gospel to me. And I always kind of just get a slight chuckle, and I don't say anything, but I think, mm, there's a difference between hearing and listening. And when you were spiritually dead, they may, have, they may have proclaimed the gospel around you with a tambourine, and you wouldn't have listened to it. But the moment that God regenerated your heart, then you reach back and you realize that is the truth. Yes and amen, I'm a sinner, I am unclean, I need forgiveness. And you run to Christ in repentance and faith. But again, all of those things are outworkings, those, those are fruits, right? And so what is being said here is that the immediate need in every human life is that we need cleansing. We need regeneration. And the only one that can do that is the Spirit of Almighty God. And what a joy it is to know that He has done that in the lives of those of us who are gathered in Christ today. Now here's the, the reasons why. And I'm, I'm going to give you some theological answers and try and pedal through this um, quickly, but I, I will tell you that one of the gifts God gave me this week, just joyfully, if, if, if any of you have ever read through the canons of Dort, the first person to ever, t I didn't know what the canons of Dort were. And I misheard him of what Dort, I thought he said canons of Dork, and I'm like, what is that? Uh, the first time, but I was told they are, they are as dry as dirt. Man, they are dry if you don't understand the context. But when you understand the context and what's being wrestled with in those particular doctrinal statements, they're fantastic. And my friends disagreeing meant I had to do two things. One, as always, rest in Christ and Christ alone. Father, show me what your word is actually saying because these yahoos won't get their act together. And two, it forced me into this thinking through, again, this entire theological controversy uh, in the Dutch church where the remonstrants, these are liberally minded people who I believe had some uh, political motive more than theological, and that happens around the church all the time. Uh, and these, these remonstrants, these people wanted uh, to come to the church, and the church had taught for ages that it was the Spirit and the Spirit alone, God alone, that regenerated the hearts of men. And the remonstrance, again, because I think of some political movements and some ideological things that were evolving in the culture, and, and what they wanted to do was lift before the church um, the intellect and the free will of man. That, look, God, and they would say, God does not treat human beings as though they were mere stone, just chiseling out whatever he wants. Well, no one has ever said from a position theologically accurate that God just made stones in that sense. It, it, robotic, mechanical, and that's salvation. That's not the argument at all. But what, what they want to do is to create a straw man and then say, um, look, we have to volitionally choose. We have to, we have to do something to condition ourselves to, to, to be acceptable to receive grace. 
And again, friends, there's a, there's a way in which in our conversion as a fruit of the regenerating power of the Spirit in our life that we do turn in repentance and faith. We do cry out to God. We do run to Jesus. And if you're here this morning, I pray that as you understand what the Gospel is and that, that reality is open to your mind, that you would come to Christ in faith and repentance. But I hope that you see that faith and repentance is an outworking of what God is doing in you, not something that you are doing to precondition yourself to receive grace. And so ultimately, the remonstrance laid out their foundation on top of this idea that our human intellect and our free will is the very means, the mechanism by which we come to Christ. And, and they, didn't, they wouldn't have said a, uh, a, a, a pre preparatory grace. What they called it was a, there is a provenient grace. There is a, there's a grace that God gives, and He kind of gives you enough so that you can choose, but then you've got to kind of flip yourself into the believing category. Boy, I know me. I don't know about you. But I know the holiness of God and what His law demands. And there is no way that I could flip myself anywhere but to hell. So this kind of theology really is important to nail down because it's damning. Again, one little fly will it ruin the entire ointment. A genuine, the genuine reality of the Gospel is this. There is a call that goes out universally to everyone. This morning, right now, if you can hear the sound of my voice, the God of the heavens has, has performed everything necessary for salvation. In eternity past, He declared it, He decreed it. Jesus completed redemption in His salvific, meritorious works, and the Spirit is applying it. And so, G and, and so the Father this morning calls every single human being that was made in His image, Christian, non-Christian, to turn in repentance and faith and live their lives under the glory and the majesty of the Lord Jesus Christ. He is calling people universally to faith this morning. The problem is... That no one responds in repentance and faith unless they're born again. So often I get this question, well, if, God, if God's the one that ultimately, then why, why do we go and share the gospel? Because the call has to go out, and because as obedient followers of the Lord Jesus Christ, we've been called to give the call, right? That's what, that's what the, the Synod of Dort uh, stated clearly in chapter 3, article 8. Listen to these words. They're beautiful, in my opinion. Nevertheless... All who are called through the gospel are called earnestly, for urgently and most genuinely God makes known in the word what is pleasing to him, that those who are called should come to God. God also earnestly promises rest for their souls and eternal life to all who do come and believe. Everyone who hears the gospel is hearing a true and an urgent call to repentance and faith. And we see this reality scripturally played out in Matthew chapter 13 in the parable of the sower. We go sowing the seed of the gospel, proclaiming the call of God upon the lives of humanity that we are called to repent and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. But we will not even see the necessity of that call unless we are born again unless the spirit does something and that's what chapter 3 article 8 says explicitly and beautifully that there is an immediate that is there's no proximate means to our salvation to our being born again but it is immediately a work of the spirit to regenerate the hearts of men stated clearly moreover when god carries out this good pleasure in the elect or works true conversion in them, God not only sees to it that the gospel is proclaimed to them outwardly and enlightens their minds powerfully by the Holy Spirit so that they might rightly understand and discern the things of the Spirit of God, but by the effective operation of the same regenerating Spirit, God also penetrates into their innermost being, opens 
The closed heart softens the hard heart and circumcises the heart that is uncircumcised. God infuses new qualities into the will, making the, de making the dead will alive, the evil one good, the unwilling willing, the stubborn one compliant. God activates and strengthens the will so that like a good tree, it may be enabled to produce the fruit of good deeds. That's what Jesus is ultimately leaning into here. It is the Spirit who has to take our evil hearts and make them able through our will to, in a new regenerate nature to cry out to the living God. The idea that we prepare ourselves for grace is anathema to the Word of God. It is not found anywhere. God doesn't call us to prepare ourselves for grace. God heralds His grace that this is a work He is doing, that He will build His church for His glory, and that He will be worshipped in splendor throughout all of eternity, not for what we have prepared, but for what He has prepared. Friends, that should cause us to glory in the Gospel and in our God this morning. So what I want us to see this morning and clearly and we should be thankful for our Presbyterian friends in fighting some of this out for us. I want us to see that repentance does not save. We do not prepare for grace. Grace prepares us for faith. Birth physically does not save. We've seen in chapter 1 that... that New life is not of the will of man nor of the will of the flesh. So this water and the Spirit cannot be a physical reality. Baptism nowhere in Scripture makes us alive. Baptism is a mark, an outward sign of something that God has already done in our lives. That He has taken our hearts and He has ultimately cleansed them Yes, even by the Spirit. And so then as a step of obedience, we follow Him in believer's baptism. And beloved, not even, and this I say carefully, not even the Word, though it is a product of the Spirit and it is holy, not the, the Word does not regenerate us. We should preach the good news to everyone. We should teach the Word to our children. But without the power of the immediate work of the Spirit on the soul of a lost sinner, there is no hope. It is not the Word that saves, though the Word must go forward that the Gospel may be understood and the Spirit might enlighten the mind. It is the immediate regenerating work of the hand of Almighty God that brings us into the kingdom of God. In short, there is no preparation for the grace of God. And there's three positive reasons about why I think I'm right. That, that chapter, verse 5 is teaching that we are born cl needing cleansing of the water that comes through the Spirit. Yes, even the Spirit. That that is the right interpretation. Uh, our hearts need that cleansing, need that regeneration by the Spirit alone. Here are my three positive reasons. One is the immediate context. Let's read verses 6 through 8 together. That which was born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it come from where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. The Spirit is put forward here as the one who is regenerating hearts. I did have a little bit of a chuckle with all of my friends in my pastoral study fighting this out in all of their books this week. Jesus says, don't marvel. This is a mysterious reality. And part of the reason why I think we struggle with these two words in, in chapter 5 is because we're kind of meant to. And as theologians, when we try to put our neck around the backside of those words and figure them out completely, God humbles us by teaching us that we are mere mortals with fallen minds. And ultimately, what He wants us to understand is that our salvation isn't in the hands of men. It's in the hands of a triune God. So the context, though, gives a clear emphasis. Also, look at verse 10 with me. 
Jesus answered him, Are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? Now here's the problem for all of those who would want to make the water synonymous with New Testament baptism. I'm not sure that we can make the historical argument that Nicodemus would have understood a New, te- new Covenant type of uh, water baptism. I don't think that Jesus would have rebuked him in that sense. But listen to these verses in Isaiah. Verses that Nicodemus was responsible to know, to understand, and to rightly apply inside the the community of believers. Isaiah 44, verse 3. For I will pour water on the thirsty land and streams on dry ground. I will pour my spirit upon your offspring and my blessing on your descendants. The Spirit here is, is, is linked to the imagery of water. Uh, we even remember uh, Jesus at, at the well and, and telling the, the woman that, that when you drink from, from, from the well that He gives, that there is this fountain that wells up inside of you. What is that fountain but the outworking of the Spirit of Almighty God? We also see in Isaiah 55, Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, come and buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money or price. So so what Nicodemus should have understood and should have known was promised in the Old Testament. We find this in Ezekiel chapter 36. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. Well, what happens when this comes to pass? What, what happens when, when, when we receive a new heart is that we've been born again. We've been given new life. And finally, I think the reason why this is the right interpretation of verse 5 is because it fits with the uh, implication of the incomprehensibility of the working of the Spirit that we can't fully know, it's somewhat mysterious, that we find described in verse 8, the wind blows where it wishes. In this life, believers cannot fully understand the way that this work occurs. Meanwhile, they rest content with knowing and experiencing that God, by this grace of God, they do believe with the heart and love their Savior. That, that is also the canon of Dort speaking there. That we don't know all of how we're born again. If I lined up all of the infants that have just been born in the church and, just, and said to them, now I want you to describe your delivery for me. One, I think we can all agree in here that it's a grace of Almighty God that we don't remember all the details of that day. But also, it's not the point. And I'm going to tell you this. This is, this is the stirring of my heart as I wrestle through this text. Friends, we have, we have built modern Christianity on a preoccupation with knowing the exact time, with all of the mechanisms for the new birth, when clearly stated in this text, it's a mysterious working of the Spirit alone, right? And what happens when we replace what Jesus is saying here with the mechanics and wanting to know the exact moment and, and, and having a, a cool formula filled out is we allow unregenerate people into the church because what Jesus is pointing at is that you will know that the wind is blowing by the fruit. You'll know that someone's really been born again by what comes out of their life. And we now live in a day that if someone makes a profession of faith, how dare you, pastor, question that profession? When throughout all of church history, if someone professed faith, they, were, they, they would have expected that the church, not in an unloving, ruthless, moralistic way, but in a loving way concerned for the souls of men, that they would be questioned. That, that the church would be watching. That we would want to see the true effect of repentance coming out of your conversion, not as some boilerplate stuck to the front end. Repentance is a grace that genuine born-again Christians delight in. We don't delight in the crushing of seeing our sin clearly all the time, but we, de- we delight in the reality that our Father works in us the grace of repentance, that we come to Him afresh and anew and receive mercy and forgiveness. So I think, I think this interpretation fits in, in understanding that there is some incomprehensible, mysterious nature to the new birth. So then the question in all of this, simply put, 
If you've been sleeping for the past hour, wake up and we can go home soon. Because this is important. And this is the outworking of understanding, putting repentance and all of those things in the right place. What do we do with a sinner that's in need of grace? Do we at LifePoint Baptist Church stand in front of them and give them a theological uh, understanding of, of repentance and how it works? Do, do we give them the canons of Dort and say, when you understand these things, you can be saved? Lord, I hope not. Uh, do we give them the Octorard or Creed and ask them what they believe about that reality? No. Do we send them to preparatory works? Do we tell them, well, get yourself ready by praying. Get yourself ready by begging. Get, get yourself, if you would just read your Bible more, then maybe God would save you. Do we give them the delusion of preparatory works? Do, do, we, do we tell them, look, you need to stop doing things, and once you stop doing enough bad things, then you'll be prepared enough that God can save you? And the answer is no. And here's the gift that the marrow men, those who stood on the right side of the Octorard or Creed, give to the church this morning, and why I'm so thankful for them. Their answer to what do we do with a sinner that is in need of grace, when they were asked that question, their answer was simple. Send them to the cross. Send them to Jesus. Show them the suffering Savior, the one that bled and died to atone for sin, and that, that, that He called them in repentant faith to believe upon His name. The, the reality of what we should do with sinners is to put before them the glorious reality of the substitutionary atonement of the Lord Jesus Christ as He bled and died for all of those who would turn in repentant faith believing on Him. And we should ask the simple question, do you believe in this Jesus? And do you love Him as your Savior? And if you're here this morning and you've never turned in repentance and faith, I'm not asking you to work in yourself some sort of repentance so that you would be acceptable to God. I'm calling you to run to the cross and beg mercy of Him and Him alone. And you'll only do that under the, the constraint of the Spirit of God. Now, the second question is, what do we do with a saint who is struggling in sin? Well, I think far too often we've told them, stop it. Just knock it off. Quit being so bad. Again, Brian, do better. Try harder. That's not the Christian response. Do you know what we do with sinners who need grace even on the other side of their conversion? We send them to the cross. We send them there because the atoning work and the merits of Christ are sufficient for I, I, I'm convinced that this is one of the major problems in the Christian life. And it's rooted in, in Nicodemus' heart here. What must I do? Wait, there, there is this frenetic energy that comes out of all of us because we know our lostness, we know our depravity, and we know that we are wretches. Look, we have to spend time alone with ourselves. So what do I have to do? And we believe in our minds, Jesus can save me, but I've got to get myself at... It's like He's going to meet us halfway at a truck stop and pick us up. That is not the Gospel. The Gospel is that He births us anew into His family, and there is not one sin that any saint has ever committed that is not triumphed over in the cross. That's the glory of the Gospel. And what we do with sinners who are still struggling is we remind them, dear brother, dear sister, we do not need in our own effort to cleanse ourselves. What we need is all of the Lord Jesus Christ. The church historical understood this phrase in, in Latin. I'm starting to lament the reality that, that modern school children are not taught Latin. I know that I won't make headway on that, but... It's a reality uh, that totus Christus was the phrase. That means the whole of Christ. It is only being found in Him that we are ever free to repent of our sin. It is only being found in Christ that we are ever able to battle our sin. It is only being found in Christ that we ever can hope to see heaven. And it is only through the birth wrought by the Spirit of Almighty God that we have hope to be found in Him. Would you pray with me? Father, we come before You thankful. And we cry mercy for the many ways that we seek to add to Your work. Oh, how foolish it is 
that we who have unclean hands and unclean hearts seek to add to Your holy and miraculous works. Father, we're so thankful that You've set Your love upon Your church in eternity past, and there's not one that will not come home. We long for the day when we are gathered with the true church, those who are repentant and believing upon the Lord Jesus Christ and Him alone for salvation. Father, we know that it is only through the merits of Christ that we can come even praying to You this morning. We know that it is only through the blood that we're acceptable in His sight. And we know that it's only through the blood that we can mortify the sin that we find remaining in our flesh. And Father, we know that it is by the power of Your Spirit that You have birthed us anew, that You've regenerated our hearts, that we can turn in our time of conversion and call upon the name of the Lord for salvation. Father, I pray that You would continue in our lives to press upon us the ugliness of sin and the glorious beauty of Christ that He has redeemed us from every aspect of our sinfulness. And Father, if there's one here today that doesn't know You, that's still scoffing at sin, that still, still takes lightly their rebellion before You eternally, I pray, Father, that You would birth them anew, regenerate their heart, that they would see the heinousness of their acts before You, refusing to give You the glory that is due Your name. Father, might You use our church to herald and to be the means of giving the outward call to sinners that we might see You miraculously work in bringing many to 